Hey, everyone out there, and thanks for joining us again here at ASUP Nowcast, the podcast for ASUP Now. I'm Amy Ho, ER doctor and ASUP Now assistant editor, and your host of this podcast. February is here, and despite being a short month, it comes with a couple really important dates. Probably first is the entire month of Black History Month. And rather than covering that specifically here, I wanted to refer you to two places. One is for year-round discussion on diversity with the ASEP Diversity Inclusion Health Equity Committee. And second is actually Dr. Ryan Stanton's ASEP Frontline, our sister podcast, where he is featuring a special National Black History Month episode of Frontline. Now, ASEP Now also has our own special episode, but for a different event in February for National Women Physicians Day. If you missed that special episode, please still go back and check it out. We have a great interview there with Dr. Pamela Benson. Now, on this episode of ASEP Now, we'll have a couple pieces of content. We'll first feature a really big ASEP initiative that's also in the magazine on stories about boarding. Now, boarding is not unfamiliar to any of us working in the ER, and it's an incredibly important topic. And our fellow ASEP Now editorial board member, Dr. LaBoss, and I actually debate out one of the known and somewhat controversial side effects of boarding, where we discuss waiting room medicine. We'll get into a lot of some of the points on the pros or cons of it. I mean, pretty open on this one, but my belief is that waiting room medicine is an inevitability of the emergency department. And so something we should go ahead and accept and create processes around to try to improve what we're doing out there. Whereas Dr. LaBoss takes the counterpoint of trying to mitigate boarding overall and not giving in to uh, the concept of waiting room medicine. After that, we'll have a feature with Dr. Blair Bigham, who is a guest ER critical care doctor in Stanford, who we're actually having back on. Now, in this episode, we will be covering his perspective on death after his experience and training in critical care and the emergency department. So much so is he passionate about this perspective that he wrote a book called Death Interrupted, How Modern Medicine is Complicating the Way We Die. Now, we have got a lot to cover, so let's go ahead and jump right in. This month, we have a feature in the magazine on stories about boarding. Now, boarding is absolutely no new topic to any emergency medicine physician or APP because we see it all the time. Now, ASAP did a large advocacy effort and a reach for stories for us to submit to help in advocacy. And in the magazine this month, you'll see a lot of those stories. And the stories are the same tragedies that, again, a lot of us are unfortunately all too familiar with. There's stories about patients dying in the waiting room, about waiting rooms with patient counts that are five times the number of beds of the ER, Stories about horrible nursing ratios, about seeing patients in the waiting room primarily, seeing them in closets, seeing them really anywhere we can see them because that is what we do as emergency medicine physicians is we do what it takes. Now, none of this is to glamorize the rough conditions that we all already know exist, 
But ASAP relies on these stories to help again with our advocacy efforts at the federal level. So if you would like to assist with this or just read a little bit more, please, please, please not only check out the magazine and its feature this month, but please go to asap.org forward slash boarding. Again, that's asap.org slash boarding, where you can read a lot about these advocacy efforts and that you can submit a story if you would so like to help with painting the narrative of the situations we face day in and day out. Now, something that was interesting that came out of this planning for this issue was actually the ASAP Now editorial board actually had a really interesting debate between myself and Dr. Philip Luke LaBeouf, where we uh, took kind of opposite viewpoints on waiting room medicine. I think the inevitable fallout of boarding is that you have no beds to see patients, so we all move out into the waiting room. And I'll be pretty honest, I took a pro approach to waiting room medicine. I wanted to do everything we could to make waiting room medicine a process so that we could see more patients safely. Dr. LeBaugh took the con and he was willing to come join us today to help open up that debate for you guys to take a listen, see what you thought. So Dr. LeBaugh, thank you so much for joining us today. Hey everybody, uh, glad to be here. Uh, my name is uh, Philip Luke Labob. Most people know me as Luke. Uh, been around ASEP for a little bit and getting active with uh, ASEP now. This is a uh, going to be a fun time, I think, today. Uh, a little bit about me. I live in New Orleans. I worked at a level one tertiary care academic trauma center for uh, a little over 11 years and then about a year and a half, two years ago, I transitioned to a community hospital that's still a pretty large hospital seeing about 50,000 patients a year. And then I moonlight at a rural access hospital that uh, doesn't have a whole lot of services at all. So uh, I've got a pretty good experience both in you know your big ac academic centers educational aspect and then moving on down to nitty-gritty work uh in the rural areas so i've been seeing boarding it's getting worse and uh i don't like it and uh i don't think it's our problem to fix through the emergency department yeah so Lavar, this is the conversation you and i got into so tell me what is it that makes you so staunchly against waiting room medicine knowing that you and i agree um you know boarding is is here it's a problem well it's i'm against it but i do it it's uh as much as i don't enjoy doing it as much as i don't think it's good for the patient it is absolutely a necessity so you know we're not just abandoning the people to flail out in in the waiting room uh I like to think that I do what all emergency medicine doctors do, is make the best of a bad situation. I will bring care to the patients where it's needed, and we are problem solvers. We are MacGyver uh, individuals, and anytime a system is broken, we will make it work. Now, that kind of goes back to why I'm why I don't like waiting room medicine and why I made the comment about the emergency department having to fix a problem for the hospital at least at places that I've worked, 
it's always been the emergency department had to bend over backwards, bend and don't break, bend and don't break to make up for the shortcomings within the rest of the building. Uh, we're always glad to do that. We're always to provide care, but the entire hospital's problems shouldn't be laid on the shoulders of the emergency medicine doctors. And so that's kind of where my hackles get up a little bit about it's yet one more thing that the emergency department has to fix because the rest of the hospital can't get their act together. I, I can appreciate that. And, you know, I think I have a little bit of bias because my background is actually in administration. Um, most everyone here knows me from uh, from my role with ASAP now, but kind of in my day job, I work for a um, medium size, I'd say, uh, medical group that's actually physician owned, physician led, founded by a physician, um, which I think really slants how we approach these sort of issues. But I came up in administration. So basically fresh out of residency, you know, I was doing administrative fellowship and then worked as an assistant medical director and kind of kind of made my way up in day to day operation. Um, but we accepted that it was inevitable. So we know, just like you said, that we're MacGyvers, we make things work. We are literally these specialists at making things work. But we also know that, you know, holding patients as collateral as a way to, you know, ransom the hospital and to trying to come up with solutions isn't part of the narrative we want to put out there. And so what is, is kind of reaching across the aisle. So I think waiting room medicine if you do it efficiently, shows um, really all of healthcare, not just your hospital, that we're here doing our best while still um, getting our partners to agree with that. And when I say partners, I mean our partners in hospital medicine, our partners in social work, our partners in ICU, our partners in EMS for transfers, our partners obviously in administration at the hospital level. But I think playing nice makes it so um, having finesse in waiting room medicine, uh, you know, helps the overall problem. And a lot of, you know, time that I spent was working on how do you make waiting room medicine better? Like what is good patient selection? What is good provider selection? Like obviously you wanna do probably lower acuity patients, more simple complaints. Um, you want providers that can be a little bit minimalist, that can churn patients. You might want to have dynamic staffing for both physicians and nurses so that you can handle day-to-day -day surges. You want to come with processes where there's like nurse or tech or phlebotomist resources or, you know, physical access resources, i.e., you know, nearby lack kits, nearby pixises, um, having internal waiting rooms, having a process for doing quote-unquote waiting room medicine, but in a way that is both uh, you know, ensuring privacy for patients. And also, you know, what do you do with these patients after? Like if a patient needs a consult or admit, like how do you facilitate that? So I think again, bias, because I spent so much time on that, I think helping in this process of waiting room medicine and kind of just being like, hey, it's here. It's a part of what we do um, helps us actually A, tackle boarding and then B, make us collaborative partners so that we can address a hopefully larger solution. You seem to be very lucky in that you're working at a facility that has such strong physician leadership and physicians that are in the C-suite that are being listened to. Uh, unfortunately, some of the jobs that I've had in the past, uh, 
people that have been removed from the bedside from decades or people with an MBA that have no clinical background whatsoever are trying to dictate to me best practices and you can clearly see that they don't know what they're talking about and it gets to be a little frustrating uh, whenever Blue Cottage comes in or McKinsey comes in or different organizations like that and, and, and they don't understand the world that I'm living in. You're lucky is that you you're on both sides of that fence. You're able to talk to both sides of that equation. And that is a plus for the practicing pit doctor to have somebody like you that's on their side. Yeah, and I, I don't think I want to, you know, like uh, pat ourselves on the back, but I think, you know, I, I certainly was welcome to have walked into a facility where physicians were already um, very well liked and very well listened to by administration. But I think that came on you know the shoulders of people that well preceded me of you know physician leaders like site medical directors um assistant medical directors even just you know pit docs that were um invested in the issue of reaching across the aisle with surgeons you know talking to administration when they did rounds during the day like that sort of thing um that helped facilitate the idea that yeah like we're the er we are here for emergencies we are here to you know in a way carry the backs of healthcare on us, but that we still need help. And I think that message happens actually over many iterations and years of physician leadership. Yes. And it's, uh, I mean, maybe this is, I, I, I guess petty is the wrong word, but the planning that you've discussed, the internal waiting rooms, the throughput issues and all of this, I like all of that. And whenever it's instituted as a new change within a hospital setting, I think that you would get more buy-in from the practicing doctors based off of how you sell it to them. Have a practicing doctor pitch it to them. Don't have an MBA pitch it to them. Don't have uh, somebody that's in the C-suite that, that you've never met before. Have somebody that you've worked hand in hand with to sit down with you and explain how this new process is is going to work. Uh, also, give explanation to the ED doctors what the rest of the hospital is doing. Uh, acknowledge the difficulties that are going on in the emergency department and show me that the hospitalists and the surgeons and and the other folks that are upstream and upstairs understand what we're dealing with and show me what sacrifices they're making to try to, to help the situation as well. Yeah, I think you bring up a lot of really good points. Um, and again, I'm biased. I come from administration. Actually, my, my current role in administration is almost purely in data and analytics. So we look at things like what is the um, arrival to triage time? What is the arrival to room time? What is the you know dispo to departure time for discharged patients and also for admitted patients? So that has, in a lot of ways, let us go to our um, counterparts and say ICU and say, hey, guys, um, we've looked at the ICU patients admitted in the ER. What's going on? Because the, your admit hold rates are, uh, let's say, like four times what hospitalist medicine is. And those sort of comparisons I found to be extremely helpful. Um, I will say I do think that it takes someone centralized to be able to pull that data and to discuss it in a collaborative way, whether that comes from the hospital um, or, you know, if hospitalist medicine wants to take the, take the lead on that or ER wants to take the lead on that, I do feel like there's usually a vacuum of who wants to lead that discussion. 
and you know, biased opinion, I think ER uh, is probably one of the best to do so. Well, it's, uh, I think the emergency department is more likely to not be stuck in a silo. We can speak surgeon, we can speak ICU, we can speak medicine. And so I think that I do understand some of the difficulty these other specialties have. Uh, and I hope that they would also understand some of the difficulties that I have. Again, if everybody's on the same page and everybody is equal within the conversation, I think that would be a great way to work towards bettering the situation. Uh, but again, boarding is a hospital-wide, very complex issue. And expanding the ED, expanding the capabilities of the ED providers, uh, you know, I don't think is a good answer to a problem that's upstairs. Yeah, I, I understand. It's like a problem that trickles down to us, right? Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. and, and I'm willing to work hard and I'm willing to bend over backwards, but I also want to uh, see that other folks are doing the same Uh you know, and, and then go for the low hanging fruit. Prove to me that the hospital is uh, is trying to help out. I mean, one problem that we occasionally run into is there's going to be one housekeeper for the entire facility on an overnight shift. Well, you expect me to turn over beds. I can't do it unless I'm mopping floors and changing sheets myself. And so there are some simple helps that can be done as opposed to the complexity of multiple internal waiting rooms and things of that nature. Yeah, I will say sometimes the multiple internal waiting rooms feels a little bit like Disneyland. Like you wait in the line and you're like, oh boy, I'm about there. Then you turn the corner and you're like, nope, another internal waiting room, another another turn. Um, I, I guess you, you bring up a, a good question though, kind of from the perspective of the pit doc. Like not every hospital um tries to address the solution administratively i totally agree with that like i think i am very blessed to be at a highly physician-led organization at ies which makes a lot of these like interdisciplinary uh discussions a lot easier at the hospital level but kind of for a day-to-day pit doc like what is there to do if you are at a facility that like there isn't an answer, you know, like boarding is terrible. You're expected to do waiting room medicine. There is no process to help with it. It doesn't seem to get better. Like this is the story I hear a lot um, when people are kind of burning out of medicine. Like any thoughts there? I, I mean, it's exactly what you're saying. It's constantly being told to do more, do it faster, do it quicker, do it with less. See 20 people in the waiting room with one nurse uh, and even if there is an emergency, there's your your uh, your best nurse already has four ICU patients, two of which are intubated. I mean, it's we are revving the engine so fast, and at some point we're going to break the engine. We're going to throw a rod on it, and so there needs to be help to unload the system. And COVID accelerated everything. Burnout, the nursing shortage is, has has elevated everything but you know what can we do to help unload us in the emergency department instead of getting tasks added to us and that's every time i open up my emails 
I see, hey, here's something else that we want y'all to do in the emergency department. And again, these might be good things. These might be helpful things, but you also got to show me how the hospital's trying to, on the back end, unload tasks as well as giving me new things to do. Yeah, I totally understand. It kind of takes me back to um, ASAP. Actually, a few years ago, there was a great talk about um, emergency medicine. Like, are we here for emergencies? Like, are we the experts in being resuscitationalists or are we actually just available lists? Like, we're available. And then if so, you know, uh, honestly, you're right. Like, a lot of things just kind of keep getting added on to us. And the rating room is unfortunate, I think, part of one of those. Um, But this was a, a, a super, I think, helpful discussion to see two really different perspectives. Um, Dr. LeBon, I'm going to let you kind of close out first with just takeaways. Uh, So it's, I like to work. I like medicine. I like taking care of patients. I love working with the ED team. Uh, I don't believe that boarding is an ED problem. I believe it's a hospital problem. And I think one of the ways to fix this is to get more practicing doctors at the higher levels of the hospital that are able to speak on even footing, that there's no hierarchy, there's no, well, this person is more important because they generate more money for the hospital. Those kind of issues I think need to be put to bed and there needs to be a hospital-wide response to all of this. And the answer can't just be laying it on a few people at the bottom and expect them to do more and more work. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think you you touch on a couple really important things. I think one is the importance of physician leadership. Two is the importance of hospital-wide initiatives, which to me, I think um, someone's got to take the first step. And a lot of times it is ER physician leaders because it's what we see. It's what we know extremely well. The waiting room is right there. <laughs> like it's very much in our domain. So we feel it. Um, and, and to me, a lot of times the onus, um, can be on the emergency medicine to take those first steps because, you know, the, the hospital, um, are, are, the hospitals are our collaborative partners. Like they're not really our adversary. No one wants boarding, like, you know, no hospital administrator walked around saying, wow, I wish I had, you know, more boarding hours in my hospital. And, and I think the, the, the takeaways that I have from, again, a slant of administration, kind of being a physician leader in administration addressing this issue is to, I think, first talk to your administration in the ER about options in the ER, i.e., is there like a flex area or kind of a vertical area that you could come up with a small process to take care of the waiting room sometimes for patients that's appropriate for? Like I, I'm reminded of one of our pit docs actually that used to show up at 3 p.m. with, you know, 80 patients in the waiting room. He would grab a nurse. He would grab a tech. He would walk out to the waiting room, make a large announcement of like, hi, I'm Dr. So-and-so. I'm going to try to take care of some of you that I can just get addressed and let go. Please don't be offended if I pass over you. And then he would just start pulling patients into, you know, functionally a closet um, to get seen and, and addressed. And I think that was the beginning of, of um, you know, waiting room medicine and coming up with the process. Um, and, and I think that starts at the local level. 
Um, I think, you know, we mentioned multiple times, both of us, that this is a hospital-wide initiative. So I think if you're at a place where um, discussing that at the hospital level is appropriate, I think you can start opening up conversations about, you know, hallway patients on the inpatient ward, um, doing things like patient discharge lounges to help their throughput, um, admit hold areas to move them at least out of the ER, increasing social work, PT, OT, ST, to help with the inpatient side. And then lastly, I think at the organizational level, again, I want to make one more plug for um, ASEP's advocacy efforts on boarding. So if you want to visit ASEP.org slash boarding, that's where you can submit stories about boarding, about waiting room medicine, and more importantly, um, see how you can get involved with advocacy about boarding. So again, Dr. Labat, I want to say thank you for taking the time for discussing this super important topic, um, to which I agree. Like, I don't know that there is a solution, but boy, do we try. Well, thanks for this opportunity. I really enjoyed it. Uh, hope I didn't come off too, uh, angry at the concept of being forced to see patients in the waiting room. It's, it's something that I'm happy to do as long as I see we're trying to make the situation better. Yep. Absolutely. I think we're all just trying to make the situation better. Great. Thanks a lot. I am so pleased to be sitting here actually with a repeat guest to ASAP Nowcast, and I'm sitting here with Dr. Blair Bigum, who is a Canadian ER doctor turned Stanford critical care doctor, who has a really interesting topic for us today. So Blair, first, I want to say thank you so much again for joining us. No problem, Amy. Thank you for having me back. Yeah. Now you wrote a book. I did after uh, a long time experiencing death in the field as a paramedic and then in the ER and then in the ICU, uh, things started to get really complicated in my mind. And I thought that writing a, a book might help me sort of untangle some of the emotional and intellectual conversations I was having with myself. Yeah. Now, so um, let me introduce the title of the book. So it's called Death Interrupted, How Modern Medicine is Complicating the Way We Die. So when I saw that you had written this book, I thought, wow, we have to talk because for sure, a lot of times it feels like we're not really saving lives anymore. We're kind of, sadly, you know, just delaying or prolonging deaths. So I want to talk about how, how has your paradigm um, as an emergency medicine doctor, or actually as first a paramedic, then an emergency medicine doctor, then a, now a critical care doctor, how has that paradigm really changed how you view death over your experiences? Yeah, I'd say it's complicated it. So when I was a paramedic, there were two types of, of dead people. There were the dead people who were obviously dead, like you got off the elevator and you knew they were dead because of the stench coming from their apartment. Like, you know, the people who are just like definitely dead, maybe they have rigor mortis, maybe they're decapitated, like people who were so clearly dead, there was nothing left for me to do. And then there was everybody else, the people who were pulseless, but who were going to get that ACLS algorithm, that good kick at the can to see if we could resuscitate them or not. And then in the emergency department, it became a little bit different because I was now the one who was ultimately deciding when to call the code. And so you would have those moments where you were like, oh, have I actually done everything that I can do before 
I officially sort of sign on the dotted line and end this person's life. And then you get to the ICU and it just, you know, it, it snowballs into these cases that are kept alive on technology. You know, they have heartbeats, they have respirations because of the ventilator, because of the infusions. But in your heart, you think, you know, there's no way this person is going to survive. But, you know, the conversations we have around those cases are are muddy. We don't just say, oh, there's no way they're going to survive. Because deep down inside, maybe we don't always know. Maybe we just suspect. But at some point in time, you can't just throw the kitchen sink at everybody. At some point, everybody has to die. And ultimately, I came with this observation that, you know, as an emergency doctor, I don't want anybody to die too early, right? Like, that's why I go to work every day, Mm -hmm. to, to make sure you don't die too soon. But I also recognize that in modern healthcare, people can die too late because they're tethered to machines Mm -hmm. and they're on this roller coaster that they can't get off. And so that sort of tension is what led me ultimately to dig into this um, because it bothers me. I go home at the end of the day and, you know, I lose sleep over these cases, not where I wonder if I haven't done enough, but because I wonder if I've done too much, if I've just you know, put too much technology into a situation that should really just, you know, we should just allow a natural death. I don't know. I'm, have you probably yeah. come across situations like that? Eh? We're just like, oh my God, what are we doing to this person? I know. And, and it's so hard, I think, to define what is death because, I mean, you talked about like defibrillating a patient 13 times, like totally, like in the ER, we do crazy stuff like that. We love getting Rosk, right? We feel accomplished with it. And like, I personally feel very like emotionally conflicted because we'll spend a couple hours on a code. Like we can put people on ECMO, like we can keep people alive a long time. And sometimes I'll get someone back. I'll call the ICU doc. um, And, you know, and this is like one of those things that sticks with me. Like I was, I'm so proud of getting this, um, this code back after a couple hours. Like it was probably very unlikely they were going to have any return of their neurologic function. And the ICU doc came down. I saw him go in the room and maybe 30 seconds later, he had left the room. And I was like, how did you do an assessment in 30 seconds? He's like DNR. And then he just walked away. So yeah, I mean, like I get it, but you know, at, at a certain point I'm like, but there's a bright line somewhere, right? But maybe there isn't. Well, you know what? I, I think there's a couple of things to unpack there. First of all, uh, there's good data to suggest that we should not prognosticate early. And I hear this a lot from my ICU colleagues when I resuscitate someone in the ER is, oh, great, now I have to take care of someone who's never going to survive. And I'll, I'll mm-hmm. bite back. I'll say we should not neuroprognosticate in the first 48 to 72 hours You have to give these people time to cool down and to declare themselves and show if there's going to be any recovery. And so I think that we actually don't have great data to guide us in who we should attempt a resuscitation on. And so I like that eMERGE mentality of uh, intubate, cannulate, throw in the IO, get the drugs in, defibrillate, 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 get them on ECMO, Mm -hmm. get them to the cath lab, because we're early enough in this physiological unraveling that we might be able to change the course, but you won't know the impact of that for at least a few days. But then we get into this problem of seven or eight days later, where maybe now we do have a bit more clarity. Maybe we can say that 
you know, there's, there's cerebral edema, there's a lack of blood Mm -hmm. flow, there's poor neurologic prognostication. And at that point, I think it becomes much harder for an intensivist to go after the do not resuscitate or to attempt to flip the plan. Because by that point, there's so much hope baked into the family that it becomes a more difficult conversation. It's much easier when everyone's in shock over what's just happened to say, oh, there's no way this person's going to survive. But we actually don't know that very often. It, it's um, it's very common to, to neuroprognosticate right after cardiac arrest. You know, I'll have, I'll have an RT at the head of the bed look at the pupils and say, oh, their pupils are blown, they're fixed, we're done here. Mm-hmm. Uh, or one of the nurses or one of my colleagues, and I say, you can't do that. Of course the pupils are fixed. They've been ischemic for a while. It takes mm-hmm. time before we actually know. But I think that when we get into modern North American healthcare, we're going beyond the patient who just arrived by ambulance and cardiac arrest. We're talking about people with multiple organ failure who are still getting more and more technologies thrown at them. And that, I think, is a very different story. The other thing I want to jump on is you said that it can be really hard to determine if somebody's dead. I think that for the public, we have to make it crystal clear. We have to, there can't be any confusion about an actual death. Once you're dead, you're dead. Now, we can have confusion about prognostication and about if you'll be living in a long-term care hospital on a ventilator without any consciousness for the rest of your life. But if a doctor says you're dead, we'd better be right about it. Otherwise, we get into all sorts of other troubles. And there's two ways you can die. You can either lose a heartbeat or or you can be brain dead. You can lose the ability to be conscious and the ability to breathe. And really, when you think about it, brain death is is really all you need because if your heart stops beating, well, your brain's going to be dead pretty soon. <laughs> so really, mm-hmm. I think we need to be crystal clear that doctors know when you're dead and when you're dead, you're dead because we've had these cases in the United States and Canada where people end up in court trying to keep people on ventilators when they're brain dead. And that's that's not good for anybody. Yeah. Um But the muddy area, the gray area, is when you're not quite dead because we're using all of this technology to keep you going, even though we don't have an endgame. Yep. Yeah. And and so let's talk about that. So I'm totally with you. The definition of death is fairly well established. It's a little bit weird, right? Because your heart stops. That's literally what we call a code. And then I mean, you're dead for, I think, those minutes that you, you know, are undergoing CPR. But if you come back, you're back, which is weird because death should be this permanent concept. And then same thing for brain depth. Like we have obviously very established um, either exams or imaging to help define that. But in this gray fuzzy zone, like how does the definition of death fit into the discussion of like, what is life? You know, like the quality of life, like we're talking about these, you know, kind of futile cases where, you know, someone may never have any meaningful uh, recovery other than, you know, their brainstem reflexes. Like, what do we do with that gray area? Yeah, well, there's two ways we can go, in my opinion. The first is to say everyone gets to choose for themselves, right? If you you believe that um, there is value in laying in a hospital bed without consciousness or or brainstem activity for the rest of your life, um, then fine. Then we just allow it and we put those people into a room and we pay for their life support because they find it valuable. 
well, that's one option. But I, I think that the other option is for society to set a threshold of what is a meaningful life. Because we cannot, uh, in my opinion, have everybody make it up for themselves as we go along because it gets really confusing. So I think that at a bare minimum, you know, what makes me a person, like what makes me Blair and what makes you Amy is our ability to to think, our ability to contribute to the world. And I think if you lost consciousness permanently, I think that as a society, we could probably set a threshold and say, that's a life that would be supported in a futile way. Now, I'm sure that there are a number of ethical perspectives that come into this of where that threshold might be set. But right now, we do have a state-by-state and country-by-country patchwork of what would be considered acceptable and what would be considered futile. And I think that's sort of the bar that we have to start with. And then, you know, if I were to ask you, Amy, or if you were to ask me, what would an acceptable quality of life be? Consciousness would not, (laughs) consciousness would probably not fit the boat, right? Like, like doctors and nurses, especially those who work in the critical care community and the emergency community, you know, if we're like, if, if I can't get back out parasailing, then I don't want to be alive. Just pull the plug. Yeah. And so we have this <laughs> very bizarre threshold, right? Because we see what critical care looks like and we don't want ourselves subjected to it. And so I think what we think is acceptable is a fairly high bar that might not be the same for other people. And so what I would consider acceptable for myself is probably not, you know, what I should apply to all of my patients. But also, I don't think it's fair for me to let grieving families who don't maybe have a full perspective on what non-death entails. You know, many people say that living in a long-term care hospital is a fate worse than death. Like many people would not want to live with, you know, the trach peg lack of consciousness situation, fully dependent on other people for care and survival. Um, And so I think we just have to recognize that everybody has their own threshold, but that there's probably a societal threshold that as a group of citizens, we say, you know, we're not going to support people below this threshold. And we've already done that. We've done that. If you're brain dead, then the hospital is going to remove you from life support. We're not going to play games and give you parenteral nutrition and IV hydration and mechanical respirations. Um, If you're brain dead, you're brain dead, and we're not going to continue supporting your body. And so we've already set that threshold. But that's, I mean, that threshold is in the basement, right? I'm sure that as a society, and other societies have certainly done this if we look around the world, even in other G7 countries, the threshold is higher. Um, not as high as what I might hold for myself or what my, a lot of my friends would hold for themselves, but it's definitely higher than being brain dead. I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I'm with you. And I mean, I I don't work in the ICU now, right? I'm mostly in the ER. And I kind of remember in my time in the ICU, like it's such a hard discussion to have with the family because obviously they want um you know their family member to come back um we can give some guidance that we think it's medically futile but 
you know, we can never say absolutes, you know, like we don't, we don't actually truly know. Like we don't know that, you know, 20 years later, there might not be a little flicker of something, yeah. um, even though they've been trach pegged, et cetera. So we give probabilities and I think we make a lot of decisions on probabilities. That is what medicine is. And I'm totally with you. I think people in healthcare have an extremely high standard of what is a meaningful quality of life. Um, probably because we see, you know, this trach peg nursing home patients, like, you know, they linger until like their pneumonia or their UTI or their sacral wound, like finally get them. And, yeah, and we're like, yeah. there's no way to live. Um, but you know, I, I think that's where we get into the challenge is that there's the question of, are you alive? Are you dead? And then I think there is the question of what are your chances ultimately, which go into this futility um, discussion, which uh, isn't always straightforward. And it's a very natural place for families to go is, you know, what are the chances? But I think we do a really bad ja job of explaining what the various permutations are because we'll say oh well maybe there's a i don't know a five percent chance of survival and they go oh five percent that's better than zero and the alternative in their mind is just death but i think we do yep. a bad job of saying you know there's a chance that they might not die but what that would look like is certainly full-time care in an institution they will never be able to breathe on their own. Often there are definitives, maybe not survival and, and death, but we are able to be definitive about what they might be able to achieve in the best case scenario. And so starting by taking the focus away from the family member who doesn't want to make the wrong decision and turning it on to the patient and their values, what would their bare minimum be? And if their bare minimum is to run a marathon or is to see their daughter get married next summer, that I might be able to say, oh, that is not achievable. Like I can say with definity that that's not achievable. Or I could say there's a 5% chance of that happening. But just so you know, the 95% chance has some downsides. It's pretty miserable. And those yeah. balances are really tricky. And the reason is because it gets down to our ego and our own emotions because we all have this tendency to paint a rosy picture, don't we? Like we're kind of guilty of that. <laughs> yeah. I call this resuscitation glorification, right? I say things like, well, let's try CRRT or let's put them on the ventilator. Um, and I oversell the capability of the technology. And I set people up for sort of these false beliefs that anything is possible. And, you know, television does this too. And if you watch any TV drama or, you know, growing up, I watched ER and I watched Baywatch and everyone who got CPR <laughs> survived. And that's just not, that's just not true. But, you know, it's not just TV. The way we communicate, we're, we're using this phenomenon of resuscitation glorification to give people maybe false hope or maybe an unfair amount of hope. And then we blend that with this thing that really, really annoys me. I call it micro improvement bias. It's when somebody says, oh, good news. The white count went from 30 to 25. Yeah. And I'm like, you know, okay, well that, or good news, their urine output increased. And, and we train families to focus on these micro improvements. And, you know, oftentimes I'll use the term, like we need to see the forest through the tree. 
uh, but people are looking at the bark, right? They're they're looking at the yeah, veins on the leaf, we're and I'm the like, numbers. you know, we're not talking about their creatinine going from two to one point eight today. Like that's not what this is about. This is about somebody with a devastating neurologic injury and multiple organ failure who's been hospitalized for ninety four days. You know that that big picture. I don't care about the micro improvement, but because we want to give families hope, because we see them every day and we feel really connected to them. That's what we say. They say, oh, how are they doing today? We say, oh, well, what can I give you that makes you hopeful? That's positive. What can yeah. I, and then yeah, we say these things. And we're doing him disservice. I think we are because I don't even know. I don't know how to interpret a white count change from 30 to 25. I mean, is that is that a lab error? Is that something good? Is that something bad? Is yeah. that, I mean, sometimes the morning white count is 10 points off from the evening white count. You know, like I can't explain any yeah. of that. So how is a family supposed to tease all of these micro improvements out? I think what it does is it just encourages them day by day to keep going, even when the mood of the whole healthcare team is kind of like, you know, we have done everything we can and then some. Now this person is going to die too late. And though, once you're at yeah. day 90, it's really hard. It's really, really hard to have those conversations with families because they've come so far. Yeah, I know. And they have hope and, you know, they've been there every day and now they just want to see, you know, something. And it's hard to say, like, give up at that point. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and you know, you know, what's actually really interesting um, about you and like in particular on this discussion is you know you used to practice in Canada. You can't. You practice in the U.S. now, um, and you know I know absolutely nothing about the Canadian health system. But there's always like these rumors, right? That Canada, because of nationalized healthcare, has a different um, threshold for like fertility mm -hmm, mm -hmm. than America. Like, do you think that's been something you've seen in your experience? Definitely, I think that's very true. Um, I think that when I first came to the States, I was like, oh my, like, what on earth are we doing? <laughs> you know, like we're keeping all these yeah. people alive. Um, and, you know, every once in a while, there is somebody who benefits from that prolonged extreme, uh, extreme measures. Um, and at first I started to get a little uncomfortable. I was like, oh, like back in Canada, this person probably would not have been given this chance. And the way, and you know, those happen infrequently, but they have happened. And I think the way I reconcile that is to recognize that if you're going to be on ECMO for four months, you're probably well insured, right? A, a lot of hospitals, yeah. like the hospital I trained at, we used to joke, you can't get through the front doors without a credit card. And so for some of these situations where an extreme amount of technology is used on people for an extremely long time, and, you know, I don't know what the number is, one in a hundred or something have a good outcome, um, we have to recognize that that is not done with a systems approach. Not everybody has access to that same shot. And... Um, if we wanted to talk about justice and equity and giving people the very best healthy life that they can have, um, ECMO would probably not be part of that conversation. We would want to make sure that people were all on um, an ACE inhibitor so that they, yeah. you know, so that they didn't end up going into kidney failure and, and dying of strokes and heart attacks. And we'd talk about diabetes care and things like that. 
uh, in prenatal care and making sure that no women ever died as a complication of pregnancy. Uh, but these are these are very obviously complex topics that go a little bit beyond my thoughts around the sort of death and dying dilemma. Um, but I do think that in in the countries that have nationalized healthcare or, or socialized medicine. Um, you know, their outcomes are, are better than in the United States at a population level. Um, and so, okay. yeah. a, a, and they're spending, you know, I think in Canada, we spend about two thirds per capita than of what the U.S. spends. So we spend less and we get more for it. Now, does that mean that a couple of people slip through the cracks because we don't crash them all onto ECMO? It might. Um, but that's sort of the decision that we've made in Canada, um, that we're going to not offer incredibly expensive and invasive technologies when there's a very, very low likelihood that they will work. Um, and I think that we apply that general principle of evidence-based medicine to many areas of, of American medical practice. Um, you know, not everybody gets imaged and not everybody gets um, certain surgeries and medications because we have evidence that it just isn't going to work. Um, the, the resuscitation evidence around some of these technology-assisted situations is a little bit less clear. Um, and we've done relatively not a great job, with few exceptions, um, in emergency medicine of trying to prove what treatments are worth it. And so I think this is an area going forward where multiple countries probably have a vested interest in figuring out what are the high yield interventions, what patients do benefit from going on ECMO, because I would love to bring ECMO across Canada to populations that have a high chance of benefiting from it. But I can't, I can't crash every cardiac arrest onto ECMO. I don't think that makes sense no matter what country you live in. Um, but what, what I witnessed in my training in the United States was that the technology was kind of thrown at everybody. In some cases, it seemed almost blindly. We could do it, and so we did do it. Uh, whereas in Canada, just because we can doesn't mean we will. Um, we're we're going to be a little bit more considerate about what the impact of this intervention might be on someone's uh, outcomes. Yeah, it sounds like, I mean, you talked about this earlier, like coming up with a societal standard of, you know, what is death when it's gray, like what is life? And, you know, in a way it's like Canada has come up with a societal standard of, you know, of answering that question in a way, at least in terms of resource utilization, which uh, is, yeah, interesting is something America is probably pretty behind on. Well, I, th I don't know that they're behind on it. I think all nations, I mean, the death dilemma, this idea that technology can interrupt the way you die is somewhat new, right? I mean, 50 years ago, before there were ventilators, if you couldn't breathe for yourself, you know, you had a couple minutes to live and nobody was going to intervene upon that. And so this is really a new modern phenomenon. And it intersects with this sort of um, societal ego trip that we're all on where, you know, everything that we think about ourselves is reflected back to us in social media. It's a, a society that maybe doesn't fully believe the facts all the time, but prefer to believe sort of whatever kind of promotes the self-image. And now we've come to this place in society where I don't want to die. Uh, why should I die? Um, I don't want my family to die. Death is not natural. Um, and so people want these technologies. These, they want these invasive procedures even when they're, they're maybe not going to work. And so that's almost created a marketplace for it. And it, it's almost a, 
it's a real crisis for me because as a society, whether in America or in Canada, we, we've, we've come from a place where everyone used to die at home in their beds and that was very natural and people knew that that's how you died and they watched their parents die and they watched their grandparents die and death was just a part of life. But now we're all death deniers. Nobody thinks that death is ever going to come for us and that affects the medical community as well. And so we're just throwing technology after technology after technology, trying to find these micro improvements in different organ functions, when at the end of the day, everybody's going to die. That's part of the deal. Um, and we're just trying to, to stave that off at all costs. But those costs are significant. And the suffering that comes with technologically driven life support can also be significant. And I just think it's time for us as a medical community to pause and ask ourselves, what are we doing here? You know, these people who come into the ER, they've had their fifth round of chemotherapy for their invasive head and neck cancer. And, and at some point, an emergency doctor needs to say, this is what death looks like for you. Like, like you're going to die today. At some point, they're going to die. And, you know, crashing them onto ECMO and doing a, a crike or an emergent trach and shipping them off to the ICU for the eighth time, like, at some point, we just have to accept that, that we're limited in our medical science and we can't save everybody. And at some point, people are going to die and that's okay. Everybody dies at some point. Yeah. You know, we need to get comfortable yeah. with that idea. Otherwise, we do people a real disservice by delaying or deferring what could be a very beautiful and compassionate and comfortable death with instead something that you or I would never wish on our worst enemies. Yeah, absolutely. I think these are all, you know, incredibly interesting points. And it's, you know, it's points that sometimes run counter to our specialty because there's nothing that an emergency medicine doc loves than like a good resuscitation. You totally, know, totally. Sink at everyone. I love but, it. I have you know, so I, much fun in a resuscitation. <laughs> always. We love it. And so that's why we feel like sometimes like, you know, we can do it and thus we will do it. And I think you bring such a unique perspective to this. Um, I think you did such a nice job going through this in your book as well. Um, and just to close, like any last, uh, any last thoughts for our listeners, again, mostly emergency medicine docs, but you know, this is something that we deal with all the time. Yeah. Well, I think every emergency doc has said to themselves, like they, they've met a patient who, um, who is dying too late. And they've said, I would never let that happen to myself. And, and many of us, go so far in the other direction. You know, we all say, oh, I'm a DNR. I'm a, you know, no one's allowed to do chest yeah. compressions on because we're so terrified of what that looks like. And, you know, that, that dying in a technology assisted environment where I'm afraid of it. You're afraid, like emergency doctors don't want that to happen to ourselves. And yet we subject people to it all the time. And so I always look for windows in my emergency medicine practice where, I feel confident reaching out to a patient and their family and saying, I just want you to know that we do have an opportunity to get off the roller coaster today. Um, is that something that you'd be interested in doing? And if they're still, you know, in it to win it, then I'll do everything. But a lot of people say, oh, you mean I can end all of the suffering today? I'm like, yeah, yeah. all I have to do is not intervene and keep you comfortable. And you'd be amazed. Well, you wouldn't be amazing, but a lot of people I think would be really surprised at how many patients want the off ramp. 
because they've been at it for years in this offering. We offer, offer, okay, okay, this didn't work. Let's try this. This didn't work. Let's try this. And people at some point say, I have had enough. How can I die surrounded by my family, listening to Bob Dylan? Like, you know, like, how can I die the way I want to die? Because that's how I want to die. And so as a physician, I think it's imperative that I help other people recognize how they want to die and try to find those moments where I can support that death. Uh, Because even though I don't want anyone to die too early, I am very guilty of helping people die too late. Yep, absolutely. And, you know, it's so interesting. Like, I think we love resuscitations because we love control, but a big part of death and how you die is about control. So sometimes we need to give that back to the patient and give them, um, you know, an opportunity to have a little bit of control at the end of their life when it really matters. So Blair, I want to say this has been a just incredible conversation about lots of very complex matters. The book's incredible. Again, Death Interrupted. And Blair, I really just want to say, like, thanks for taking the time to think through this, to process this. Like, this is a deep, heavy subject. And I think you've done an amazing job just uh, parsing it out into what it goes down to. Thanks, Amy. It's still something that I struggle with. Um, but certainly, I think as a group, we, we owe it to our patients to slow down a little bit and, and think about what we're doing with all this technology. Thanks so much for having me. It's always such a blast to chat with you. That is it for us this month. Thanks again for tuning in and huge thank yous to both Dr. Luke LeBaugh and Blair Bigham for joining us today in discussion. Two very important topics, both boarding and end-of-life care that we covered here. So we hope you all enjoyed it and learned something. Now be sure to check out the rest of your magazine already in your mailboxes. There is a great feature on Dr. Alistair Martin, who is also a guest on the Black History Month episode of Frontline. We also cover the very controversial AHRQ article about ERs making diagnostic errors. And Dr. Lauren Westervar covers one of my favorite clinical topics, high dose nitro and acute heart failure. And again, if you have a moment and haven't checked it out already, please go back and listen to our National Women Physicians Day episode of ASAP Now with Dr. Pam Benson, led by our fearless resident editor of ASAP Now, Dr. Sophia Gorgens. As always, we're wanting to improve and give you content that you want to hear, and we would love to hear from you. Tweet us if you have an idea at ASAP Now, or feel free to tweet me direct at Amy Faith Ho. We would love to hear your thoughts and feedback and keep you tuning in. So thanks again, you guys. Until next month.